0: My guest is a filmmaker. In fact, he's the man who brought the Desmond Doss story to the world. But there's far more to him. He's also a humanitarian, an entrepreneur, and much more besides. He's Terry Benedict. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Gary
1: Benedict, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you for having me. It's been a while since I've seen you. It's
0: been a while. What have you been up to?
1: Well, COVID took two years out of our lives. Everybody's life, of, yeah, right? kind of, yeah. Um, i've I've been I've been everywhere. I've been to Africa a lot, whole lot too. What happens for a filmmaker when COVID comes along?
0: What happens then?
1: Uh, we shut down. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, I think everybody kind of reacted the same way and. Went and hid. Yeah, yeah, so uh, many people. Yeah. There, there weren't a lot of
0: options in a lot of cases. Hey, so you're the guy who brought the Desmond Doss story to the world. Without your work prior to Hacksaw Ridge, there would have been no Hacksaw Ridge. You were a producer of the Hacksaw Ridge movie. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's go back. Today you're a filmmaker. Where'd you come from, and, and what was life like when you were much younger?
1: Oh, my goodness. that's. So here's the, sh- the short story is um, I grew up in a— you know, a conservative Christian home. Um, conservative, and the reason why I would say that is because my parents wouldn't get us a television until after I was 10 years old. Ah. So that'll kind of give people a, a, a frame of reference. Yeah. Um, what that forced uh, my sisters and I to do was to read. And so I became a vor- voracious reader. My imagination, of course, you know, went crazy. You, you know, a baseball bat became a gun, you know. Shoot. And, uh, and so like most boys, I, I read probably every war story there was you know, in history. And, uh, and so it was during that time, I think it was around eight years old, that I read The Unlikeliest Hero, and that was so much different than... It was a youth book, too, um, and I read that book, and it was so much different than all the other war stories that it kind of captured my imagination. And then a few years later... Uh, when I, th- I was either 11 or 12, I met Desmond at a church summer camp. And so his purpose and mission was kind of to give young people a moral compass and let them know about, you know, to have faith in God. That, I think that was his primary thematic at the time. And then it was uh, later on, back in the late 90s, that I met him again. So my, my upbringing, um, I went through nine schools in 12 years. And I was, I was a shy um, boy that uh, would go hide in the closet if company came over. I was pr- very shy. So going to nine schools in 12 years was like a death sentence for me, you know, uh, going to a new school. And the only thing that kind of saved me along the way was I was pretty good in athletics and, and that kind of thing. So, But um, I got a pretty good education. And then uh, when I graduated from school, I went uh, I got a, a – a, a full ride at um, Pepperdine University. Mm-hmm. It's a very good school. Yeah. And uh, that's where I started learning about filmmaking. You studied film at Pepperdine. Yeah. Hey, there's something I don't want to take for
0: granted. Someone is watching us right now and they've heard us re- refer to Desmond and Desmond Doss and they're saying, I don't know who that guy is. Uh, not many people would say that today, but how would you and, and I say this uh, with every sincerity, there cannot be many people on the planet that know more about Desmond Doss than you. So how would you describe to the uninitiated who he was and what his contribution
1: uh, was? Who was Desmond Doss? Yeah, I should know that answer. <laughs> um, it, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily easy to just kind of throw it out there. But the first thing that popped into my mind when you said that was Desmond was a very simple man. And what I mean by that was not that he wasn't smart, but I mean, that he reduced uncomplicated. everything, uncomplicated, yeah. he reduced everything to the lowest common denominator. And, and a perfect example of that was when he said a prayer, it was like 20 seconds long, you know, and yet it would cut right to the bone, yeah. you know. So he's a very faith-driven man. He was very connected to God. Um, he, and, and that, that drove his principles, which then got him into trouble, you know, and when he went n- into the military, which be- made him a true enigma of who the rest of us basically are. And he really knew how to draw a line in concrete, not just in sand, in concrete. And and that was because he had his principles very, very clear in his mind. And he was you know a theologian if a theologian were to ask him um they could certainly run circles around him but they could never you know get him off the dime to where his core beliefs were mm. he could express his core beliefs in a way that that it was like well that's really simple that makes sense i should do that mm, 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 and that's where he became i think such an inspirational person is
0: the man who was in the military as a conscientious objector didn't want to carry a gun, wouldn't carry a gun. It almost got him killed, thrown out of the ministry, and then, sorry, out of the military. And then he became the hero of, I don't think it's a stretch to say, one of the most significant battles of World War II. And you discovered that story. You grew up knowing the story. Somewhere along the line, you decided you wanted to turn that into a documentary, which was a fabulous documentary called The Conscientious Objector. Okay, tell me that, give me the shortcut. How did you get from a a kid who was interested in film or a student at Pepperdine to making a documentary like The
1: Conscientious Objective? What was your career route? Um, I, when I, it was very unorthodox. Um, It was probably the quintessential Malibu story, California story. I was lifeguarding. Um, you were not I was you were a lifeguard I was a life yes I was a lifeguard in Malibu I had actually two two lifeguarding jobs um, one was lifeguarding at the pool in Malibu and the other was at Malibu Colony Beach which is where all of Hollywood you yeah. know that people think that's where all the stars live which is not necessarily true but but anyway it's a private beach yeah and so um uh two things happened one uh much of the local community, Malibu community, many in the film business, uh, had, a, had a membership at the, at the swimming pool there so they could work out. It was a beautiful pool there, Olympic-sized pool. And so filmmakers, Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown and um, Shampoo, he would, he would work out there. Haskell Wexler, who is a multiple Academy Award-winning cinematographer, would work out there. Um, there were stunt people that worked out there. I mean, there were there were a lot of a lot of people that loved the lifestyle of staying healthy. And then down in, at Malibu Col- Colony Beach, there was a producer, old producer, who had seen me uh, do theater up at, at school at the theater department, and he had heard that I was lifeguarding at the at the, at the pool there. He was a producer who uh, wrote uh, many of the old Errol Flynn movies. Mm. And he created um, the Mannix television series and Charlie's Angels. And, uh, and he lived down on, on, at the colony. So he asked if I would come down there and interview and test out, you know, for guarding down there. So I did that. And um, between those two, I started meeting people. And, and uh, it turned out that Roxanne McCann, um, Haskell Wexler's producer, he, these cinematographers produce a lot of and direct a lot of commercials. The best commercials on television are done by the cinematographers. And so they asked me when I got out of school if I wanted to go work with them. So that's how I started in the business, working with one of, uh, one of the most amazing filmmakers in the history of Hollywood. What a dream introduction. Yeah, it was, it was like I was very blessed. And the first movie I worked on was with another great filmmaker, James Cameron, on the first Terminator. How about that? Yeah. What did that do for you? It, professionally, what did that do for you? Well, it's, you know, when you're in school, and I did a lot of physical production while I was in school, but when you really get into the reality of it, I realized, in fact, my capstone project at school was um, how much I didn't know. Mm. It was about how much I didn't know because I'd already done some internships and, and whatnot on the sets. And, uh, and, and I think what it did, and, and my trajectory ended up being in the action adventure. Realm on second unit where the stunts are and, and effects are, are are done, and so that's that can be kind of a wild ride. And and it's you're supposed to create the illusion, you know, of 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 danger, not be in danger. Right. So I, I will tell this quick ditty about my my. no, it was my second night on Terminator. I was the first AD. The the, the the original AD had gotten moved up to second unit director, and the the, the 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 second AD, I mean, the second unit director had actually gotten fired. Um, so I literally, on the second day of my professional career, got moved up to first assistant director, which you're responsible for the 150 people on that set. And they're all, like, st- stunt people and, and effects people. The Second Street Tunnel in downtown L.A., tons of movies have been filmed there. Um, Gene Hartline uh, uh, the stunt uh, double for Arnold on the motorcycle there was a ramp that was only about this high and there were smoke bombs being thrown out and I had grown up riding you know dirt bikes and whatnot and I realized when Gene was gonna hit that ramp that he didn't have anything left in the throttle he was in second gear and he should have had something to goose it to so he could get the forks up he didn't he came down the forks twisted and, of course, he's not wearing a helmet, yeah. um, and, his, and his head's going, whap, 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 on the pavement. And I'm think, And I'm diving off the camera car that's moving along with the stunt coordinator, and I'm thinking, this is the last day of my career. This is the last day of my life. Yeah. And I got over to Gene, and he, he had suffered a concussion. He was, you know, not feeling good. Fortunately, he healed up. He lived. It, 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 it all turned out fine but it's it, it it made me realize because at the end of the day there's paperwork we have to fill out and i was a nervous wreck and that was when i grew up that night i grew up because i realized that never again i would in in my roles that i played that that safety was always going to be you know number 1 and i didn't care if they fired me or whatever i was never going to let somebody you know compromise that aspect of filmmaking so mm, mm. You found your way to the conscientious
0: objector. Fantastic documentary. What do you have to go through in order to
1: get that made? Hell.
0: Yeah. It was it was tough?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, I, I I was at a point in my career where um one step b- before that, John, was was where I had done so many um film projects on second unit, um, and other projects, too, that I had done a, a Steven Seagal movie, which um, the only good thing about that film was the stunt sequence that we had done, the car chase, and which was very memorable. And um, the producer on that, Peter McGregor Scott, who was a Scottishman, um, was one of my mentors as well. He was looking at me, said, what's wrong with you? And I, I said, I don't know why. He said, well, something's wrong. And I said, yeah, something's wrong. I'm not happy, and I'm, I was bored. Uh, and here we just pulled off a half a million dollar stunt, and um, and so the next, it wasn't long after we wrapped that that show that I split by myself and went to Ireland. It was, I kind of call it my leaving Las Vegas moment. If you've seen that movie where Nick Cage goes off to die, basically, and um, and so I went to Ireland. And I really, it, it, it was more than just about, i got to figure out who I am. It's like, okay, I'm done. I've achieved everything. I'm done. And I don't need to wake up the next morning kind of thing. And it's in the most beautiful part of Ireland at the Cliffs of Moher. And and just something kind of urged me to step back. And um, and I did. And I met a man, an old writer named Eric Hogart, who translated um, Hans Christian Andersen's work into English hmm. um, and, uh, and so he intuitively said, listen, you need to go back home. There's another project for you to do. So I went back, and it wasn't long. I started writing on a, on a screenplay that I had wanted to do for a while. But then I got a phone call about Desmond, and if I knew him. And, of course, I, kn- I had known who he was. And they had said that they were interested in making a movie. And I, I said, I don't think you have any business making a movie. I think, because you don't know what the story is. All you know is the Medal of Honor citation, which right. I had told Desmond to his face. It reads like a big fish story. Like, who's going to believe that, you know? Um, and so uh, and so that's where it all began from there, and that was in uh, 99. And I literally, just on a wing and a prayer, um with prototype cameras and lenses uh, from uh, Canon, uh, supplied the lenses and Panasonic, the, the engineering cameras. It was model, it was prototype number two that we started with, barely a camera-looking shape. And, um, and so we started shooting in uh, 2000, and we ended up at NAB, on the cover of NAB magazine, and the, the camera wasn't even available yet. So I didn't really know a lot about the technology because I was still really discovering it. I felt like Forrest Gump, you know. I was finding myself in these situations, including in lockdown of 9-11. We had just passed the Pentagon an hour before it got hit, and we ended up uh, down at Fort Pickett. And we were on lockdown and uh, shooting the back barracks scenes were the original barracks that Desmond had been Mm. in when the major came up to us and said, the world as you know it is, is no longer. It was like, okay, what, is this Dr. Shivago or what are we doing here? You know, And that's when he took us to his headquarters and showed us the towers coming down. Oh, man. It was like crazy. Yeah. I want
0: to ask you about the making of the documentary and then your involvement in the making of Hacksaw Ridge. I know there's a lot to say. We'll be back in a minute. Yep. And there's more, too. I'm going to ask Terry about his involvement with... The case of a gentleman who was committed of a crime, convicted of a crime he didn't commit and was then sentenced to death. That's an important story. Back with more. This is Conversations. He's Terry Benedict. I'm John Bradshaw. Brought to you by
1: It Is Written. Did you know that more than half of Jesus' parables address our relationship with money and material possessions? As God's children, we're stewards of the resources on this earth. And God has given us examples of how to do that well, and wisely. As we study managing for the master till he comes, we'll learn how God asks us to care for our fellow man and how to achieve financial freedom through financial faithfulness. Come along for this important study and learn what it means to steward Christ's resources here on earth. Join us for a new It Is Written Sabbath School study each week on itiswritten.tv.
0: Welcome back to Conversations, brought to you by It Is Written. I'm really glad my guest is Terry Benedict, filmmaker, documentary maker, humanitarian. More about that in a few minutes. You made the conscientious object of the first story about the life of Desmond Doss. Walk me through some of that uh, that process. Really interesting. You got to speak to the gentlemen who were there uh, with Desmond Doss, the people he wrote about in the story, the ones who threw the boots at him as he prayed and threatened to take his life. You met these guys. <laughs> What were they like?
1: Well, I, I had told Desmond uh, that I wanted to cast the net far and wide. So there were 17,000 men in the 77th Division. I had no idea. This is in 2000. So I had no idea how many were still living, right. who, how would we get there. So I went and sought the help of the Pentagon, the National Archives in Washington. I mean, we, we, and they were all too glad to help, which was great. Nice. Out of, out of 17,000, we interviewed 24 people, men that had some sort of shared war experience with Desmond. I think it was 24, maybe 23. And, um, and out of those, I think about a dozen made it into the documentary. We had, we had 200 hours of material mm. to reduce down. And as one of my editors said, when we got to the 10-hour mark, then it then it was incredibly difficult because we were throwing gold out yeah, that's right. right and left and, and that must, that must have hurt. It, it, it was it. In fact, Chris Chris Savelli, one of my editors, put together forty five minutes of nothing but testimonials from the guys that didn't make it in, mm, mm, mm. and it just ripped your heart out. Yeah. So what happened to that?
0: What happened to that footage? Is it ever going to see the light of day? I don't know. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be great I mean, to have that available it would, someplace.
1: It would. Um, it deserves to be seen. Yeah. Um, I think the, I think there are a few things that were that really stick out of my mind now. Um, twenty years later, it's hard to believe it's been twenty years, that's but right. it's twenty years later. That pro, that journey was three and a half years. First mm. of all, and I think that one was you know that, that that greatest generation was known for not talking. Right. So I think that's certainly one of the things that 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 stood out for me was that all of the families were so. Um, thankful and grateful that they finally got to hear their either their husbands, their uncles, their grandfather finally tell their story you know and, and, and so they, so they could make sense of who their, who their loved one was and who he is you know at the time. I think the other thing that jumped out at me was was the timing i I was lamenting certainly along the way that I wish. That we had done this like 20 years before that. Yeah. Because a lot more sure. of the guys had, would have been around, especially some of the pivotal ones that I really wanted to, to go after. Um, but we weren't too late because, in fact, um, Colonel uh, Statman, Major Statman, um, he died two weeks after we interviewed him. And so they started, they started dropping off as, as we were f- doing the interviews.
0: Were they willing to talk or when you approached them and said, I want to do this thing and here's the store and you're familiar with it, here's where you fit in. Was there a general willingness or a general reluctance?
1: Oh, they were all too happy to they do were. it. Yeah. Now, it's not to say they weren't nervous. Sure. Um, are uncomfortable. We tried to make them as comfortable as possible. Sit in your lazy boy chair, basically. I mean, how exciting can that be for a documentary? <laughs> you know, sitting in your favorite lazy boy. Yeah, but then you took them to Japan. You I did. You took
0: them to Hacksaw Ridge. What was it like to walk around a battlefield with the men last time they were there, They were firing and being fired on. It was life and death. It was a hellhole for them. Mm -hmm. You took them back. What did you see play out in front of your eyes?
1: Well, uh, it was nerve-wracking for me because I needed to figure out, I wanted to not miss a moment, you know, capture that on camera. Right. So, So what we decided was we would take each one individually up and give them a chance to absorb it, and we would film their very, fr- I mean, what you see is what you get as in, in the film, which is just, it's riveting. And, and then we brought them up together as a group. And what they didn't know was that we had been able to find, uh, I think, five or six of the Japanese soldiers that had been on the, on the ridge and brought them and just let them kind of converse. And we did film it. Um, and um, they, didn't know it was, they didn't know it was coming. No, and Jack Glover, who was the main nemesis of Desmond, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we had him walking, uh, and I love Jack. He's walking away, and on Mike, he said, I'd still kill every one of those SOBs. He said that? Yeah, after all of those years. Interesting. And, and so, and, and that was really driven. For us, it's harder to understand to, how to let go, but those, those guys, and one of them was a machine gunner, and those guys killed so many of oh, Jack's yeah. men, that that's what that's why he said what he said. Oh, oh, listen, I mean, I, I don't want to be inappropriate, but um, I read. No, I ran into a
0: guy I was looking at buying a house from this guy years ago, an old fellow at the time, and he mentioned he was in the war, and I said, "What do you remember?" His eyes kind of glazed over. He got this faraway look. He said, "I can still see those Nazis. I'd mm-hmm. kill them if I could." And just the other day, someone else said, and this was. Okay, I'm sure the man is, is deceased now, but he was an elderly man. And he referred to the... And people thought, lovely guy, lovely this and that. he said, <laughs> I just regret I never killed more Nazis. You can call that mean or you call it whatever you want. But I think what it is, is just reality, right? Yeah. We paid the boys to do a job and it was a life and death. It's not like a job that you or I have ever been anywhere near. I don't think we need to criticize or condemn. Maybe we just try to understand
1: well, and I think uh, this is one of the most important documents I came across in the National Archives by, by chance was uh, a folder on conscientious objecting. In there was a study that was done post-war uh, with the, with the um, army that, um, the, that uh, served in Europe, the American army, and that it was stunning that um, out of the men that had the enemy in their gun sight, mm-hmm. that all they had to do was pull the trigger and they were dead. Only 28% could pull the trigger, 28%. So if you think about that, what would have happened if 100% of the men had pulled the trigger? How soon would that war have ended? Oh, yeah. It's, it's not easy to kill somebody. Right. When it comes right down to it, even though they've been inculcated in the propaganda of this is the enemy, shoot to kill, it's not easy to pull that trigger until yourself, you get triggered. And that's one of the things I learned um, from these guys was that's why Jack had that hatred, you know, you can't once something's been done to your loved ones and your mates are your loved ones, your buddies. Oh yeah. Um, it's just you you don't that easily doesn't go away. No. No. The documentary
0: was followed years later by a movie. When you were making the conscientious objector did you know, did you feel, did you expect that one day a
1: movie like Hacksaw Ridge would be made? For you, was that an inevitability or not? No, that was, that was that was intentional. That that I had told Desmond, I said, look, we first have to discover your story, and then we can go make a film. Because Desmond had been approached for decades to by Hollywood to, to do a story, but he was always concerned that they were going to compromise the essence of his character, you know, have him womanizing, whatever. And Desmond was... I mean, he was pretty much your quintessential goody-two-shoes. I mean, he, he wasn't like most of us, you know. I mean, he—and and, and the way Hollywood typically tells stories, the character, the hero, has an arc that they go, and somewhere in that arc they have a come-to-Jesus moment, you know, and, and you know, they turn around kind of thing. But Desma's story was different, and, and this, is, this is what a lot of people didn't understand through the years— Desmond never changed. Right. He changed the world around him. That's what was so counterintuitive about his story. And so I understood that from the get-go, uh, and that's why I was able to promise him, made the promises I could keep, that I told him in the, in the, in the atrium of the Village Market in Collegedale of all places, I told him, I said, look, um, I'll answer to God first, you second, and everybody else can get in line which caused problems for me personally along the journey. Um, but it was at that point he said, yes, I want you to do all of this. So so timing is everything in Hollywood um, in terms of getting projects made. And um, uh, Steven Spielberg had been very successful at Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Hollywood isn't necessarily the most original place for ideas. So the next thing you know, there's like, a dozen war movies, you know, it was like, let's capitalize and ride the coattails. Right, Every single one of those pictures basically didn't do well, you know, financially. And, and so when I had uh, uh, decided on a producing partner, and Bill Mechanic was, um, he had run 20th Century Fox at the end of the 90s um, to go uh, partner up with him, uh, we hit a wall with... Um, the cycle that was going on in Hollywood with war pictures, and they weren't doing well. In fact, kind of what was the nail in the coffin was Clint Eastwood's uh, uh, Flag of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. Both of those films didn't uh, do well at the time, and we had a different director attached uh, with us, and he, he had a deal with Warner Brothers, and uh, Warner Brothers were like, well, if you, you know, Clint can't do well with the pick, what makes you think you guys can't? Right. So we started in a cycle in Hollywood called Development Hell. So it's like it's a great project. Everybody loved it, but it's like no faith in that it's going to do well at the box office because there's no history there. Yeah. So, so finally it came back around in, uh, in the early teens, 20 teens. Um, Bill was able to uh, reinterest Mel, Mel in the project, um, which was great because Mel was kind of in the doghouse.
0: When, yes, he was. <laughs> so. Yes, he
1: was. Now, when Mel Gibson came in, did you
0: feel like oh this is the, the this is it or did you feel like oh this is it? Now you you were part of it, so I imagine you were hopeful. But man, Mel Gibson could have been the kiss of death. Instead, he was the exact by everyone's death.
1: account. He was. Yeah. we were we were not being too too smart and doing. What, I I think Mel's one of the best filmmakers in the history of Hollywood. I mean, he he's amazing. Um, I I ignored uh, for me personally. You know, the baggage, because in a a Christian mindset, you're supposed to be able to forgive. You're supposed to be able to reconcile, which is the most important part of the forgiveness. Right. Is to be able to reconcile. And so um, I felt like he he it made sense for him to do this. So I was totally on board with that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So those who saw the movie see the, the, the the magic. You know, mm-hmm. you don't see the guy throwing the smoke bombs. You see the smoke. But in making the movie, uh, it's work. It's, uh, look, it's a bit like magic. The magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat. I see the <laughs> rabbit come out of a hat, but the magician understands all right. the stuff behind it. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard work, let's let's say. What's that like from a filmmaker's point of view?
1: Well, first of all, Bill Mechanic... Um, you know he did an amazing job in doing a, the heavy lifting on on the producing side and and packaging the film and 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 bringing mel in, in into a safe haven environment because mm-hmm. that's really important um and that enabled mel to do what he does best and and be the filmmaker and really get his vision out there well everybody knows that mel is a very graphic you know uh it loves to show graphic sure. the nature of film uh, of the story, I should say. Um, and this was a problem for us—not uh, for us, is uh, for Bill and and uh, and I. But it was a problem in the sense that we were producing an R-rated picture, and and that's then where does your audience go from there? Sure. Because we we are in a business and we have to make sure we are doing the financially responsible thing, right? You know, and that was even a problem initially, which is it was for Walden Media, who actually had the rights that we assigned to him at the time. But they, they do Christian or inspirational type of film, but they weren't interested in our rated picture. Mm-hmm. You can't do, and this is what I used to say to people, even on, on the circuit uh, and when we were doing preview screenings, Desmond's story is about a guy who cleans up carnage on the battlefield. Unless you're going to constantly shoot up at his face and never see what he's working on, you, you're you going to get into an R-rated film. Sure. Um, so there was nothing gratuitous, and that's something that I know we're all very proud of. I know one of the things Mel and, 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 and Bill are proud of as well, and me too, were, were the fact that the that the effects were were almost all physical effects. So when you saw the f- flamethrower, I mean, you're standing next to you. You feel the heat coming, and you felt the concussion coming from, from the explosions that were happening, so when the actors were running through and, and whatnot. So that wasn't a bunch of CGI. The CGI part, when you see Desmond, uh, uh, I guess this is a, is a when 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 Andrew Garfield's on the litter being rescued, I mean, green screen behind there, you, you know, that's the kind of effects that, that we would do. But but in terms of physical effects, I mean, that was a throwback to when I started in the business, you, you know, back in the 80s. So I was loving it. I thought it was great. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Were you happy with the response
0: to the movie? It's hard to say I wasn't happy, but do you think it, it, it maxed out about where you felt it should have? Or do, do, do you think it was deserving of, of more accolades and more ticket sales? How were you, how were you satisfied with the reception of the movie?
1: Um, that's a good question for my my partner, Bill, because he actually expected more And that was a result of after winning the Academy Awards, um, our distributor wouldn't keep our show and our film in the theater for another 30 or 60 days, really. And we could have we could have done even better in terms of the box office theatrically. Um, That's part of the business in that I learned that. I was not going to repeat uh, that mistake from a business perspective of of wanting to have skin in the game on the P and A side, what we call print and advertising side, so distribution. But, but I mean, we ach- we achieved a lot. Um, the 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 Academy Awards, and this this is this is where the part that s- starts sounding cheesy, I suppose, is is we were just happy to be nominated. Now, and the reason we you s- hear filmmakers say that is because. Every decision that gets made past being nominated, it's not, there's not, you know, it's, it's right. blows in the wind, you know, kind of thing. Um, I, I felt that Andrew truly deserved Best Actor. He was amazing. And he and I had spent a lot of time together in pre-production. I actually brought him down here and took him over to Virginia. Um, so, yeah, um, and I think the other thing that's worth mentioning, and if you want to go further, we can, but is the impact that the film had on mm. society, on audience, on demographics. I mean, Absolutely. yeah. There's a lot to get to,
0: I want to get to that. We'll do that in just a moment. I'm glad to have with me Terry Benedict, filmmaker and more. Uh, thanks for joining us for this conversation. We'll be back with more in just a moment. With superheroes being big business, we ask ourselves what heroes really look like. A man in a fast food restaurant wrestles a gun out of the hands of a killer. A man in Canada risks his life to save a woman being attacked by a polar bear. A young man attempts to run across a continent to raise money for cancer research. The Medal of Honor is awarded to United States servicemen and women who've committed acts of uncommon valor, heroes. But what's a hero, really? And who is the greatest hero of them all? Join me for The Hero. Learn that real greatness, true heroism is found in service and discover the identity of the real hero who has saved more lives than anyone else in history. Don't miss The Hero, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Thanks for joining me for Conversations, brought to you by It Is Written, my guest, filmmaker Terry Benedict. You're known for Hacksaw Ridge and other things. We'll talk about the other things in just a minute. I asked you a minute ago if you were satisfied with the impact the movie made, the accolades, the heights it reached. Talk to me, though, about the, the cultural impact of the movie, how it touched lives, how it, how it affected
1: the world. How did, how did you see that play out? I think it started when I was doing preview screenings. Uh, We'll do Q&As afterwards many times just to kind of get a sense for marketing purposes and and also finishing the film Mm -hmm. if there's any any headaches in there that we need to address. Um, I think people, for the most part, went in expecting to see kind of that Saving Private Ryan. And what they didn't realize and what they came out with was that They got They got wrecked because they saw a man who stood up for principles, stood up to a military machine um, for all the right reasons. But the military machine had all the right reasons to go to war. Mm -hmm. And so how do you how do you resolve that conflict? And what they I think what people realized was they started questioning themselves and saying, well, what would I do if I were in that situation? Or what wouldn't I do if I were in that situation, even more importantly? And, and it really shook people in a way that they had to f- try to figure out what do they stand for? I mean, literally, w- w- what, what do I believe in? Mm. You know, what am I willing to stand up and say, haul me off to prison, shoot me now? Because I mean, they used to shoot conscientious objectors up until World War II it caused people to pause you know and then when they really started thinking about it i think they had to start questioning their values and and so what's happened in the let's see that came out november 4 2016 and it was in the theater until just after the academy awards in 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 february 2017 um Ever since then, there's not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't call me. Somehow they get my number or they email me and say that film has, like, changed their life. Mm. I mean, forever. And, and I think how that changed me. So when you ask me, am I satisfied? Yes, I'm satisfied. I mean, do you ever want more? Always want more? I mean, sure. if you're a perfectionist, you know, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but, but, <clears throat> but I know and understand and can accept the fact that it has caused substantial change in people's lives. And I think what that did for me as a storyteller was say, we got to do more of, of this, you know, kind of thing. Mm. And, and that, that began to shift some of my film slate projects. Uh, um, and it also started opening up, of course, after that, people started inundating us with projects that they thought we would like to see, which was good, but we're really looking for kind of a throwback to, to the Greeks. Where it's um, working on things that are true, good, and beautiful, mm-hmm. and and I think that's where we can make the impact. And I think, in from a from a, a believer perspective, um, the thing that I'm most proud about that film is it is the only uh, ins- inspirational or I would say faith film, if you're going to put it in that category, that did international box office. So if you look at box office, what the other uh, projects have, have done in the past. They've done w- very well domestically. And I think that what's important and what it really pointed out to me was that there's a way to tell inspirational stories that have universal themes that's like music that translates into all language. I don't want us to forget that long ago, your
0: name appeared in the credits of It Is Written Television Program. <laughs> now, maybe that's why the program was so good at the time. I don't know. Let's <laughs> <Doubt gonna, it. laughs> go back to about when. About what year was that?
1: I was going to Pepperdine, actually, oh, yeah. and David Jones was the producer, uh-huh. director. And I, he had come to um, actually down here in Tennessee to the university here, and I happened to be here and guested it in at the class and I, I, that's when I got introduced to him. And he said, um, listen, when you're, when you're back out in California, uh, I will call you. And if you're interested, you can come and work on the crew. Yeah, well, you're only a stone throw from where the It is Written program was being filmed at the time. That worked out very well. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it, again, it came at a, I think, this is how seed planting works. Yeah. This is why I trust it, is because George Vanderman, was like he became sort of my surrogate grandfather, like Desmond did. Nice. And he was just this gentle soul. When I graduated from uh, Pepperdine, he gave me a Bible, a study Bible. It was a written study Bible. Fantastic. And um, and he never said anything, you know, it wasn't a proselytizing to me or anything. And um, and so I think um it was just, it was probably the seed that he's really responsible for just kind of keeping the spirit along there, you know. Because nice. <laughs> I was not probably in the best of places then. Well, I'm happy that it is
0: written, was able to invest in yeah, you. Yeah, you did. And we'll give you a lot of credit for the outstanding, <laughs> outstanding product that was produced at the time. Um, Which leads me to this. And, and I'm asking this because half the people watching want me to ask you this. You're a Christian. And you've made a life working in a really secular environment. How have you managed to thread that needle
1: well i haven 't always i mean to be honest but but i i mean if 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 they're interested in knowing how now yeah. um, i <clears throat> I think it goes to like what I was saying about desmond i I think you just have to have a clear picture of what your purpose is and and i I do think that You know, God works in mysterious ways, and he's very patient, and it's a good thing (laughs) that he is. Amen. Um, But I think that people often ask, and in fact, I deal with this at the institutional educational uh, level uh, with Christian universities, should we be training our young people to go into media? It's like, okay, do you really want somebody that is not a believer going producing stuff that's supposed to be ins- inspirational? I mean, how is that going to work for right. you, you know? And so I think, obviously, the answer should be yes, and we should invest in that. And we should, um, we should, we should create a system, because there's really not a system, um, even in Hollywood today, of, of working through that business. And part of that problem is, is there's not enough product that gets created uh, for what we care about sure. um, to be sustainable, you know, for people career-wise. You know. Well, the, Do- the Hacksaw Ridge and, and Mel Gibson's earlier
0: movie, The Passion of the Christ, and, and others, movies that have been made by churches yeah. have gone on to be tremendously successful yes. demonstrated there's a market and there's a need and, and there are opportunities there. Let's segue a little bit from your work in media to what I, I think, clumsily described as humanitarian things you've been involved in. I'm sure that's an appropriate umbrella term, but Mm. I want to talk with you about the case of Troy Davis. Troy Davis, a young fellow who was picked up one night on suspicion of having been involved in a murder, He was executed. You're convinced he was innocent. You're not the only one. Um, It's hard to see how an impartial student would look at the Troy Davis case and be convinced that justice was served. Walk me through that.
1: Yeah, that story um, came to me. I was at the Boston up in Boston at a film festival there with the with the CEO with the Conscious Objector, and the um, director of the festival came to me and said, "I have your next documentary," and it turned out to be Haymarket, which is the oldest um, open air market in the country, uh, and it was literally right below me in the hotel that I was yeah. staying at, um, down at Faneuil Hall, mm-hmm. across from Faneuil Hall Quincy Market, and um, but that wasn't the story. Um, I got a phone call while I was researching the Haymarket thing because I decided to stay a few extra days uh, from someone uh, from Amnesty International. And, and they said, we have your next documentary. And I was like, okay, that's two get. now. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so they told me about Troy's story. He was incarcerated south of Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. And they asked me if I would be interested in talking to Martina, his sister and i said sure i'll i'll go down there and and talk what i didn't anticipate was because you're right i mean everybody says they're innocent sure so i sat over lunch with martina and um and she told me the story but she i said okay well I, i'm 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 interested she said no it's it's not up to me and it's not up to you you have to go meet troy so it's like okay, how does that happen? He, she said, well, he's on death row and you have to get on a list. And so he put me on, Troy put me on a list. And that was when I went to go see him for the first time, which was a very moving experience mm. because he, he was a believer. He mm. um, greeted me with a big bear hug. And the last thing he wanted to talk about was him. He wanted to know who I was and my family and know everything about, you know, anything, you know, but what's the life like on the outside kind of thing. So through a series of meetings that he and I had, um, he, uh, we got, in fact, um, we got to be very, very close and so close that my wife, who um, I said, Troy wants to meet you and he wants to meet the kids and the kids were little. They were like five and seven and and so my wife said, we're not going to death row. What are you, crazy? We're not taking the kids there. And there's, I mean, they're death row people. Yeah. And I said, no, everything will be fine. Well, in in the cage, what they call the cage, um, I mean, Troy made sure he was he was a leader in that community. He made sure there weren't any of, of the guys that were going to be interested in the kids and, you know, that kind of thing, trying to sanitize this story. Yeah. Um, but but my Riley my daughter who was 5 fell asleep on his lap because we had 5 hours to talk to him and you're not allowed to take notes or anything you don't have anything but yourself there and so Troy um said look I want you to tell my story and Troy had four execution dates and the execution dates you have two days of your last visits with people and you have to be on a list for that and then you have two witnesses and so I had I didn't know Troy at the first execution uh, date that he had but I he asked me to be a witness on this uh, to be his witness uh, besides his lawyer to witness his execution yeah his execution You know, I didn't know that. So so, um, that waiting period, there's 30 30. people on that last visit list, including his family members. And so when they hauled him out at 3.30 and four hours later he was supposed to get injected, you can imagine these people were just coming unglued. Um, And one of the lawyers that Troy had had along the way, um, he came to me and he said, Terry, he said, "Do you understand what's going to happen? Because you're not going to be the same." It's like I di- I didn't have any comprehension of no. what that was going to be. No, how could you know? Right. So the reason, even why it just comes bubbles up to me now, is because um, that that's the part that people don't really understand that um, uh, w- one moment a person's breathing, the next. Minute, they're not going to be breathing, and you're going to you know sit there and watch. Now, who became one of my friends? You know, doing it. This is what I was going to ask you. You you went there witnessing an execution, you watched your friend die. Put yeah, dead. that was going to. So, the Supreme Court stepped in on the second visit, and then the third the third execution. I mean, third execution date. Um, there was another stay. Um, and, and by this time, the, the, the warden had come to know who I was, and, and I, I, while I was a, become a friend of Troy's, um, I also was going to do a documentary, tell his story. So anyway, that started uh, us down kind of a, a sideways path, and, and so when Troy had his fourth execution date, mind you, the Pope, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, the EU— uh, Congress had all passed acts and resolutions to, uh, in, a, in opposition to what was happening. So this was a very well-known case. Um, and the usual uh, people uh, like Jesse Jackson and those people, you know, activists started getting involved too. The fourth execution date, um, Troy was uh, hoping for clemency by the par- parole board and it wouldn't it wouldn't let him out of prison but it would get him off of death row yeah. and what they wanted him to do was say that he, say that he had done it right when in fact he hadn't and he had told me terry those guys i they might as well put me under because i'm not going to admit to something i didn't do yeah that's crazy
0: isn't it you often get a situation until you admit to what you did we won't entertain it but how can right. i admit that if i didn't do it
1: so so they put him in a in a corner, and so his sisters were up that day. This was the big the last visitation day, um, and they were hoping for the parole board to grant him a clemency. And I had gone in. I was the second visitor to go in to show up there when I got a phone call just before I put my phone in, before I went into prison. To, and uh, his sister, Kim, um, told me, she said, Terry, the parole board turned him down. We can't make it there in time. You're going to have to tell him. And, and so who wants to deliver that kind of news because that was the last stop so i went in there and this time they they wouldn't there was no contact so it was the typical phone and and you, it was very hard to hear through that phone so before i could get a word out troy was asking about the kids and he had just talked to the kids the night before because he had called and he had literally told my kids and given them what he wanted them to accomplish in life, in case something happened to him, mm. and I still have that on my phone. I mean, I, I walk around that with that on my phone, and um, and so it was about fifteen twenty minutes into our visit before I finally couldn't take it anymore and had to tell him. And you were the one who told him, yeah, that there was no clemency; he was going to die. Yeah, and 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 at that point, then. I mean, I mean, he, I mean, he was—he had a rea- He was upset, um, but then his very next reaction was, he said, "Terry, you need to go out there and tell now the world what's going on. You need to do what you can to see." And but I knew that meant I couldn't come back because once you leave, you can't come back. Right. So I was planning to spend the whole day there with him, plus be there that night. So um, the warden shut me out, um, so I I did not get to witness his execution. Are you sorry that you didn't? Or are you glad you didn't? I'm sorry for him that I wasn't there. I'm glad for me selfishly that I wasn't there. Because it it was, it, it was messing me up as it was. Yeah. Imagine what I was doing to him. Yep. Yeah. And if people want to hear what he had to say, they can go on and find it on the Internet. I mean, he... He, he, held, he held no ill will. He went like a lamb. He was the lamb.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what's astonishing, Terry, is that his story is by no means unique. No. By no means unique. We have a justice system that works really, really well, except for when it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it can be spectacularly bad. Thank God that's not the majority of cases, but you only need one. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let's uh, let's change gears all of a sudden if we can. You're a filmmaker. You've worked on some wonderful projects. What's the
1: dream project, the big one, for you? Wow. You know, there's so many incredible stories out there that are worth sharing with, with people in the world. It's. I think it's just really. It's really hard, which is why we have a slate of projects, yeah. you know, that yeah. we're, we're that we're developing. Um, y- you know, I I think that every single person that walks the face of the earth has a story worth telling. I really do believe that, and it's really just about the perspective, finding the right perspective, and the right angle for it, and and I think the thing that I look for, and one of the things I've discovered is is finding universal themes in people's stories because Mm -hmm. if it's a universal theme that means the whole world will be able to identify with it more than likely right and and I think that that enables us to vicariously apply those things in our own lives and I think that that's where the power of storytelling really is is figuring that out and and so that's what we try to do when we're developing our film projects Um, it wasn't too long, I mentioned about going back and forth to Africa. One of the things that came to me was as a, as a soccer film, a football, as you guys talk about football. Um, uh, it, it's a true story, happened in the early 2000s, but it's, it's really um, kind of a chariots of fire, uh, um, remember the Titans kind of project. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a true story that a man... Uh, a businessman, one of the wealthiest businessmen in Zimbabwe, um, who was a believer, uh, wanted to try to find a way to unify the country, um, and, because Mugabe was the dictator there, um, and things weren't going well for people. It's very tribal. And this is something that I've, I've, I've learned along the way, that when we think tribal, we think about you, you know, tribes in its traditional sense. But what really clicked for me, and this goes to this universal theme, was that there's the Shona Ndebele tribe mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe. Sure. And there's a the ruling tribe and the not ruling tribe. And, you know, it's like this. What I realized was this story isn't about Zimbabwe and the Ndebele and Shona tribes. This is about how we all are tribal. Sure. We all are exclusionary. And we all just kind of hook up with our own clique, and, and then that's it, you know. And, and that's how we pretty much operate. And we really don't operate in an, an inter-tribal kind of way most of the time. And what does that lead to in society? And then what does that lead to in the global society kind of thing? And then what does that mean even for believers, you know, because we're tribal in our beliefs as well, right? So I thought this kind of presented itself in an interesting uh, uh, model, you know, in the arena of soccer or football. And, and so it's really where Delma goes through a Job-like experience. He's still alive. But, um, but he really put everything on the line to try to unify the country, and for a moment in time he was able to do that. Um, and it has a Rocky ending to it, the first Rocky movie. So for those that, that know what that's like, um, it's, it's, it's a bittersweet thing, but it'll be very inspirational. And, um, and I'm, I'm excited to finally get this film greenlighted this year. And then we have several other projects, uh, that we're going to be greenlighting as well. Well, you're a busy man and
0: you deserve to be. Thanks for all you've done. Thanks for spending time here. It's been fun. It's been inspirational. And uh, we look forward to many future successes. Well, thank you for having me. Good to see you again. Hey, Terry, thank you. And thank you. What fun. So glad you've joined us. I hope you've been as encouraged and blessed as I have been with filmmaker, entrepreneur, humanitarian Terry Benedict. I'm John Bradshaw, and this was our conversation.